So let's do that. Now take your Bible and turn, I'm going to fool you, to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll, we'll uh, get to Philippians eventually here. Um, while you're turning to Ephesians 4, I had a phone call this last week from, uh, he's actually our um, sort of audio, video engineer, consultant guy. He, he designed the sound system for this uh, building, and um, he's going to help us out with some of the AV needs next door. And I was talking to him, and in the course of just kind of conversing, I've gotten to know him over the years, um, he said to me, our church just went through its third split. And, and I don't know how you react when you hear stories like that, but that's just, that's just heartbreaking. Um, the scriptures tell us that the church is the body of Christ, Right? And, and that's not just a, a fun metaphor to kind of relate to it, that, that in some spiritual way, we represent Christ on this earth. That, that's what that means. The church is the body of Christ. We can't see Christ. He's in heaven. So, so how does the world know Christ is here and he's real and he's alive? The answer is his body is here. And his body is supposed to represent him. So it is no small thing when the church of Jesus Christ lives in disunity. Um, think of what it does to the credibility of the gospel that at its core is about God and sinners being reconciled, right? That's, that's the gospel. When a brother and sister in Christ can't get along. And you're going to tell me how I can be reconciled to my God and you guys can't get along? It, it, it totally ruins the credibility of the gospel when we do not live in unity with one another. Do you see that? that that's, that's the credibility side. The functional side is, are we going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth if we can't get along, if we can't work together? We, okay, so, so there's a credibility side that goes down the drain, and then there's a functional side. When, when, when you're fighting with each other, you're not doing gospel work. So it's no surprise, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, in these verses that, that really, I think more than any other section in Scripture, articulate for us what the church is and what it's supposed to be doing, it's not surprising that of the two things the Bible continually says a church should be pursuing, one of those things is what? Unity. Uh, you guys know these verses. Uh, chapter 4, verse 11, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers... And what do those leaders do? Verse 12, they equip the saints, in other words, they equip the church, equip believers for the work of service to the building of the body. So leaders equip the believers in the church, and the believers do the work of the ministry amongst one another, serving and building up the body of Christ. 
And as we do that, what what are the goals we're aiming for? And verse 13 gives us the two goals that we're aiming for as leaders train believers and as believers serve one another and equip one another. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to fullness of Christ. So the two goals of the church are really unity and maturity. You see those two there? Unity and maturity. And when a church is building up one another to pursue unity and maturity, the end result is they are now in a position to both be credible in the world and to take the gospel and minister it to the lost people that we're supposed to be ministering to. And if either one of those two things is out of whack, the ministry suffers. If we're not unified, we lose our credibility and we lose our our functional ability to do ministry. If we're not growing in maturity, what happens? Well, 14 tells us what happens when we're not growing in maturity. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in in deceitful scheming. So if we're not growing in maturity, what he says is we're going to be easily deceived. And so we're going to say, oh, yeah, we need to be we need to be doing this when, in fact, that's not really gospel truth because we don't have the discernment to say that's wrong. That's not the main thing. This is the main thing to be focusing on. And Paul says it's like being at sea in a sea storm. You're tossed around by waves and you don't know what's right and what's wrong and you're going to follow Christian fads and you're going to go off on Christian tangents and not make the main thing the main thing. So so the long and short of it is the goal of the church as we build up one another, as we serve one another, is we are to be aiming for unity and maturity. Now, with that in mind, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Because what's going on, we've already seen it in chapter 1, but what's going on in this church in the city of Philippi is that there is a breach of that unity. Shocking. There aren't any problems in the church today that you don't see, at least at a principal level, in the Scriptures. There's always been problems with unity in the church. There's always been problems with with maturity and being deceived in the church. Those have always been around because guess what? We're not perfect people, right? We're not not complete in Christ yet. And as long as we still struggle with sin and struggle with the flesh, there's going to be challenges in that. So so Paul, uh, as he turns the corner here in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Actually, just look back at chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in, watch this, one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So as he pictures, uh, maybe I can come to you guys, maybe I can't, but whatever, whether I can make it or not, what I want to hear is that you are growing in unity. You're unified. And and he connects it back to their effectiveness with the gospel. So then he kind of goes off, he gets to the end of chapter 1, and chapter 2, verse 1 now, he's going to come back to that theme of unity. And he's going to start explaining to them how do you grow in unity? How, how do you go from quarrels and fights? And, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you have had a struggle with somebody in Grace Bible Church. 
I bet you've had a struggle. And if you're not having a struggle, you're probably not getting to know people at the level that we probably need to know people. Because the closer you get to somebody in a relationship, the more opportunities you have for conflict, right? So you can either be superficial and just kind of keep everybody at arm's distance, but that's not growing in maturity. That's not growing in unity. That's not having one another type relationships that scriptures call. But as we get closer to one another, guess what happens? We have a lot more opportunity for conflict and disunity. So how do we, how do we address disunity? How do we deal with conflict so that we can maintain credibility in the church and that we continue, we can continue to take the gospel and minister it to others. That's what Paul's going to address in the first couple of verses of Philippians chapter two. Look at these verses with me. If there is there, uh, there is, if therefore there is, that's hard to say, if therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And I scratched my head. I just be wrong. I, I scratched my head. Oh, what what is he talking about there? What what is this? I mean, I know I know he's trying to address the issue of unity, but what is that first little verse about? Here's what it's about. He is saying in these verses that the way you pursue Christ-likeness in unity is by thinking about what Christ has done for you. So in other words, if I'm struggling to get along with somebody in the church and I'm tempted to be... uh, disunified with them, if I have some problem with them, I've had some conflict, I don't like what they do or what they've said, or maybe they've offended me in some way, the the way I learn to be like Christ to them is to think about how Christ has been to me. Make sense? And, And if you think about it, this is all over Scripture. Here's a verse all of you will know, okay? I'll start it and you finish it. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You say, well, what's that all about? He's saying the reason we forgive and the manner in which we forgive is just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Do you see the motivation? I should forgive others because God has forgiven me. Um, we Im- uh, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We love because he first... Loved up. You see it? It's all over the Bible. So we learn how to be with one another by thinking about how God has been to us. And, and not only is, is that the model in terms of we get the how-tos from that, it also becomes the motivation. Because if we're honest, there's sometimes we don't want to be like Jesus to that person. Can you be that honest with yourself? Do you always want to forgive your brother when they sin against you? Do you always want to be patient with them when they do annoying things? Do you always want to give them the benefit of the doubt to to put the best possible interpretation on what they're doing when you've been hurt by them in the past and and you want to assign a motive to their heart? It's, It's really easy to not do the right thing 
because you've been hurt, because you've been sinned against. But here, here's the key, and, and if you miss everything else, here's the key. When you don't feel like forgiving, when you don't feel like believing the best, when you don't feel like being patient, when you don't feel like giving preference to one another, when you don't feel like continuing to walk with somebody, when, when you're tired of them, you're just sick of them, think about how God has treated you in Christ. Because if you think about it, He has forgiven us a million more times than we will ever have to forgive a brother or sister, hasn't He? He has been infinitely more patient with us than we will ever be to a, a brother or sister who's hard to get along with. He has been infinitely more kind and infinitely more gracious. And, and think of how stupid we've been sometimes. And God doesn't say, I'm done with you, Keith. Forget it. This is the last time. He doesn't do that. He never leaves us or forsakes us. So Christ becomes not just the model for how we treat one another, He's also the motivation. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, if you get that, watch how that develops now in the text, okay? He says, first of all, if there is any encouragement of Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any, if there's any affection and mercy, and, and, and the language is kind of weird, but what he's saying is, let, let, me, let me give you the, the, the Keith Palmer... Today's version of the, okay. Has Jesus ever exhorted you or encouraged you? Has he ever done that? Has he ever encouraged you out of love? Okay. His, do you enjoy fellowship with his spirit? And that's a source of blessing in your life, that you have the Holy Spirit. Sure. Have you ever seen his affection, his mercy, his compassion? Have you ever experienced any of those things? Have you, have you experienced those things? Yes, we have. Okay, so out of those things, watch the correlation. Out of how Christ has treated us, we learn how to treat others. And, and, and there's, I think, it, it's, not, it's not as clean as you would like it to be, but I think Paul is trying to match Things in verse 1, things in verse 2. And, and you can tell me if you agree with not, okay? So out of the fact... And, and your Bible, do your Bible say encouragement in Christ? Encouragement, okay. You understand the word... And you guys know the word. It's parakaleo. It's a paraclete, right? You guys know that word. It, it, it has two aspects of it. Uh, over here, it's, it's coming alongside to encourage. I'm building up somebody who's discouraged. It has another aspect to it where I'm coming alongside and I'm, I'm instructing, I'm exhorting, I'm teaching. Okay, So it can mean encouragement or exhortation, and depending on the context is how you figure out which, part, uh, which side of it uh, the author is intending. But watch the correlation now. Strive for thinking the same, being of the same mind. Now, so, so watch. If you have been exhorted in Christ, and, I'm, and by context, I think exhortation is a better translation than encouragement. Because how do we know... Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm totally confusing you guys here. Hang on. Okay. Talking about unity, right? We want to strive for unity. 
if we're going to strive for unity, we have to think the same. We have to think the same in, in, in essential issues, not like preference issues, but like in, in things that God cares about, okay? We need to think the same. How do we think the same? The answer is Christ tells us how to think. See, if there is any exhortation in Christ, meaning Christ instructs us, has he instructed us? Yes, we have. Okay, well, if Christ instructs us, now we all be of the same mind, we think the same based upon what Jesus tells us. Do you see the correlation? Does Jesus taught you? Yes, he has. Okay, well, take what he's taught you and be of the same mind. Think the same way with one another, which, which tells us, and you caught me, what book do we need to be in if we're going to be unified? But what book is it? You see that? We don't know how to think the same way if we're not all reading the same book. Welcome to spiritual kindergarten class. Yes, that's, that's how it works. But, but seriously, you know, and that's, that's a great test. If, if you and I are in a disagreement and you want to go that way and I want to go this way, at some point we need to say, well, what did Jesus say? You say, that's so simple. How often do we do that? I think I might need to go talk to that person about that issue in their life because I'm concerned about them. Well, they might think badly. I should stay out of that business. It's none of my business. What if, what if they get angry at me? What if, oh, I, I, I have so many other things that are enjoyable and, and, and confrontation is not one of those enjoyable things. Uh, okay, you, you see, that's what we do. And that's how we make decisions a lot of the time. We don't open the word and say, Lord, teach me, show me, give me wisdom to know what to do in the situation. We pray for wisdom. We, we just, well, it just seems like... I, I had a person, I got an email. I had a person who emailed me this week and they made a terrible decision. And you know what they said? I had peace in my heart. <laughs> Satan can do that. That's not hard. You know... You can get good salsa at Mi Familia and have peace in your heart. I mean, come on. Right? What does the book say? What does Jesus say? If we're going to have unity in a church, we need to be coming to this book saying together, what does Jesus say? And then be willing to defer to what Jesus says. Okay. Do, do you see the correlation? <laughs> do you see the correlation between we think the same way, we, we are of the same mind, and Christ exhorts us, he teaches us. Okay. So there's correlation number one. Well, what about encouragement of love, consolation of love? Well, look at this. We're supposed to have the same love. See that? Correlation. So watch this. Uh, you're, you're, I know you're tracking with me now, but watch this. How has Christ loved you how's he done it what's it look like yeah through many dangers toils and snares i have already come you can think back to your dangers your toils your snares you can think about that we all have those in our past some some going on in our present and, and who and who has walked with us as the hymn says who has continued along the way? Who has loved us? Who has not left us? Who has continued to be merciful to us, to be patient with us? 
Now watch. It's as we meditate on Christ's love for us and the encouragement we gain from that that we know how to love one another. And it's when we love one another the way we have been loved that we begin to develop unity. Let's do another one. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, verse 2 says, united in spirit, being harmonious. And you think about that, that we, we enjoy... Well, let me ask you this. How do you measure... How do you measure closeness in a relationship? How do you do that? And this is the part where you talk. You like to be with people that think like you? Okay, we've seen that. Okay, and insofar as that's biblical, that's a good thing, right? Okay, yeah. What's that? You can be honest with them? Okay. Okay, all right, good. Do you know how God says, I want to be close to you? You know how he does it? He says, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm going to put my spirit inside you. Oh, wow. That didn't happen in the Old Testament, except for particular occasions, right? All believers get the spirit, according to Romans 8. If you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. So God demonstrates fellowship at the most intimate level by saying, I'm going to take, oh, I don't know, the third person of the Godhead, and and he's going to lodge in you. That's how I'm going to demonstrate closeness. Now, if you enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit, do you enjoy his teaching ministry in your heart, his conviction ministry in your heart, his empowering ministry in your heart? Do we benefit from that? Oh, yeah, we do. So... Be like that with other Christians. Seek the same level of fellowship with other believers as Christ has shown you in the giving of His Spirit to you. And the last one, develop the right attitude toward one another. He says, intent on one purpose intent on one purpose. And it really, um, I translate it a bit differently there. Intent on one purpose, it, it really is talking again about your attitude. It's talking about your heart. It's talking about your, your, how you think about other people. Okay, He's not talking like cognitively like we need to have the same game plan. I mean, that's true, but that's not really what he's talking about. He's saying intent on one purpose in the sense of how you're thinking about and treating other people. And that corresponds to the little two words there, affection and mercy. Affection is a really funny word. It's like, it's like I mean, it literally sounds like spleen in Greek. If I tried to, it, it's like, splata, what is it here? Uh, it is um, splogkna. It just sounds messy, doesn't it? And that's what it means. It means your bowels. You say, help me, Keith. I'm not sure I see the connection between bowels. and It's saying in, in your heart, you have the right attitude and thinking and affections, even feelings toward one another. That, that as you cultivate the mind of Christ, when your brother does something 
against you or you don't agree with a decision somebody makes or you look at that family and say, well, my family would never do that. You have a Christ-like attitude toward them in the sense of affection, mercy, compassion, long-suffering, patience. Because that's how Christ... I mean, you understand that when we do something dumb as a believer, it's kind of like as parents when we watch our little guys and they do things and we go, he's two, of course. He doesn't have a clue. He's two, right? And we have that fatherly or motherly compassion on a little guy who, who doesn't know any better because he's a child. And that, that's kind of how God thinks about us, right? He doesn't get angry. He says, up, oh, he's got some growing up to do. Okay, let's help him grow up a little bit. And God uses that analogy in Scripture. We, we read it um, a couple weeks ago, I think, uh, as a father has compassion on his children. And thinking about forgiveness and, and parenting as God, so to speak, parents us. So, so you see, it's out of how Christ has treated us that we learn how to treat one another. And guess what? When we are thinking the same loving the same, pursuing harmony with one another, and having the right attitude toward one another. Those are the four ingredients that Paul says create a recipe for unity. But wait, there's more. He's not just going to say, well, how have you been treated by Christ? He's going to go a step further. He's going to, as it were, bring Jesus out on the platform and say, let's look at Jesus a little more clearly as we learn what this unity with one another looks like. Okay, You guys know these verses? Verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for the own, your own personal interests, but also for the interests of of others. Classic verses. If this is one of the first verses we taught our children. And if Bible verses had odometers, this thing would have some serious miles on it in our house. I don't know how it is in your house. One of the things that kills unity in any relationship and, and in the church this is true too is when we demand our way in preference issues. Now, God, who loves us, wants to make sure we're working on this. So you know what we're doing this year? A building project. And there's nothing like a building project to bring out preferences, isn't there? Right? Um, It happens in our homes. What do you think about this, honey? Oh, whatever you want. Well, I think I was going to do this. No, you can't do that. What? And all of a sudden, there's these strong opinions that we have, right? Strong opinions about preference issues kill unity. And in the context of the church, they kill gospel credibility and inhibit gospel ministry. 
So let's look at these verses a little more closely as we think about unity. Thinking nothing out of selfishness or conceit. Now, my Bible says do nothing. Is that what your Bible says? The verb is actually implied. So you've got to figure out if the verb is missing in Greek, you have to supply it by context. It could mean do nothing from selfishness, but actually the closest verb is the end of verse 2, which is setting your mind, thinking. So I don't think that do nothing from selfishness or empty. I don't think that's a bad translation. We shouldn't do anything out of selfishness. But you know where it starts? In here. I'm going to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit because it starts in my heart by thinking in non-selfish ways and in non-prideful ways. So do nothing from selfishness. Think nothing out of selfishness or conceit. Now, now selfishness... Um, uh, we all know what selfishness is. I'm, I'm thinking about me, myself, and I. Conceit, the word conceit just means pride or vanity or excessive. Um, I, I like this. An exaggerated self-evaluation. Now, we see this in opinions all the time, right? Because we say things like this. Well, I know best. Well, why would, why would anybody do that? I mean, I mean, come on. Don't they have a clue? And what is that? That's pride. That's pride. Now, apply that in the church. How's that work? <laughs> when I think I know best in a preference issue, uh, and you understand by preference issue, a preference issue is an area where the Bible gives us freedom for various opinions, right? You know, if we're talking about adultery, the Bible's pretty clear that that is sinful, right? But when we're talking about what color we paint the church, or when we, we think about what restaurant we're going to go to after for lunch, we talk about uh, uh, you know a thousand other things that the Bible doesn't give specific guidance on, right? It doesn't say you have to do this and you cannot do that. It gives us freedom. It gives us opportunity to, to have different preferences and different opinions. And in those issues, Scripture says, don't think, don't do anything from a selfish or prideful motive. But instead, out of humility esteem others as having greater value than yourselves. And, and that, that is really a more literal translation of what's going on here. How do you... Okay, just look up for a second. In a very practical way, how do you develop the character of deferring to other people with preference issues? How do you do that? How do you get to the point where when someone says, well, I want to do this, I want to do that, it's, it's a preference issue, it's not a, a God-ordained, black-and-white biblical issue. How do you get to the point where out of joy you let the person have their way? And not with any resentment or bitterness or, yeah, when it, when it crashes and burns, I'll say, I'll told you something. None of that, right? Just, just out, of, out of a love for giving to the other person. Paul, Paul, he nails it right here. He says, you begin to think that other people are really more valuable than you. And if we really valued other people more than ourself, then it's real easy to give preference to them when they have opinions. Do you see that? It's, <laughs> here's, here's what doesn't work. I'm trying to defer to them, but I still think I'm right. That's how it doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
You have to get to the point where you say, God really says that you esteem that other person higher than you. With preference issues. Now, that's easy to say and very, very, very hard to do. Because we love to get our way, don't we? We love to think we're right. We love to be in charge. And I would suggest to you, you can't do that without the cross. Because if you're going to really esteem others as more important than yourself, if you're really going to give preference to them, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to say, I like getting my way. I might even think my way is best. But I've got to kill that to give preference to my brother or sister. And, and actually think of it. Now, now, well, let's keep going and then I'll, I'll tell you that. Okay. So, so out of humility, we esteem others as having a greater value than yourself. And, and again, remember, this is, all in, this is all modeling Christ here, okay? So Mark 10, 45, uh, Terry mentioned it recently in his sermon. It's, it's really the theme of the book of Mark. The Son of Man came not to be serve, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of God comes not to be served, but to serve. He comes, as it were, considering one another as more important than himself. So do, not, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another than yourself. Next verse. Pay careful attention to the interests of others, not just your own. When you're really growing in humility, esteeming others as more valuable than yourself, verse 4 tells you how you're going to treat them. You're not going to look out merely for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's what it looks like. Where I'm thinking, how can I serve that person rather than get my way? How can, I, how can I manufacture things so that I make sure that, that what I want happens? Instead of, how can I look for opportunities to consider that person's needs, that person's opinions, that, that person's preferences? But, but here, here's what I was going to say a minute ago. C- can you imagine with me a church or a family or a marriage, or a relationship with adult children, or parents. Whereas that group gathered together, family, church, marriage, people actually thought that everybody else was more valuable than they were. That as those folks gathered together, the driving motive was, I would really like to meet your needs. I would really like to give you your way. I would really like to make sure that your preference wins over. Imagine a church, a marriage, a family, where we actually esteemed one another as more important than ourselves. 
So let me ask you some questions. As we think about applying these things, By the way, uh, just a footnote, you'll have opportunity to practice this this afternoon when somebody in your family says, where do you want to go to lunch? That was my question. That was your question? Yeah. yeah ask, ask Sherry. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The, the worst thing that happens is is you have this like deferring battle going on, okay? And, and that's a glorious thing. I mean, we can live with that. I mean, that's not... A, um, Guys, can we be a church like this? Can we be a church where where Jesus tells us what to do? We say, that's what we're doing. We don't care if it's hard. We don't care if it's inconvenient. We don't care if it's difficult. We don't care if it requires sacrifice. We don't care if every other church in town is doing something different. If Jesus says it, we're going to do it. And then in all these other matters of preferences or opinions and freedom issues... We just want to please each other because we actually value one another as more important than ourselves. Can we be a church like that? Do you know what credibility that would give us in gospel ministry? I mean, that's, that's one of the apologetics for the gospel. How do so many people of such different backgrounds as us, as different, you know, locations, families, parts of the world, upbringings. We, we grew up in different homes. We, we have very different families, different jobs. How do we all come together and say, we're going that way? And we sacrifice even to the point of giving up our lives for a cause. Why would we do that? See, when we do that, that makes Jesus look really, really, really valuable. That makes the gospel look really, really precious. When we fight for it, when we strive for it, when we sacrifice for it, when we say, yeah, I've got my own opinions, but I want to let that other person have his or her way. Because I think they're better than I am. Let's be a church like that. Here's some application. Um, what ways are you seeking to imitate Christ right now? Do you have, a, a, as we've seen, that, that, that what Paul is teaching us here is that it's as I meditate on who Christ is and what he's been to me, that teaches me now how to treat other people. So, so watch this. Spiritual health involves a regular thinking about how Christ has treated me so that I can be growing in how I'm treating other people. Is there an area you're working on right now? Is there an area that, that, that God has put his finger on and said, you know what, you need to be working on this. Okay. Well, a good starting point to that is to think about, well, what does Christ do? How does he handle stuff like that? What is his... Uh, example in that. What areas are you seeking to imitate Christ in? Number two. Can we, can we ask this as a, can we huddle up and, and just take our, our church game faces off and just put them aside for a minute and, and be real and raw with each other for a minute? 
What areas are you selfish in? And you ask me that. Keith, what areas are you selfish in? If we're honest, we all have areas where we have developed um, titanium-plated opinions and preferences. We, We all have areas that the Bible doesn't make a black and white issue. Bible doesn't say you have to do this or you can't do it. It's a preference issue. It's a freedom issue. But, you know, we all have areas where it's, it's got to be like this. God is telling us through his word this morning that those things need to die. Those things need to change. That we need to be willing to defer to other people with opinions, preferences, choices, for the sake of his name. We need, see, it's not like, you know, God's not against strong opinions. You understand that? God doesn't say, well, I'd rather have a Pepsi than a Coke. Okay, great. I mean, that's, that's good. God's not against that. What he's against is when that results in you sinning against your brother and the credibility and functionality of the gospel suffers because of our strong opinions. That's what he's against. So we need, to, we need to sort of hold our opinions in an open hand, don't we? It's not wrong to have opinions. We should have opinions, right? And insofar as God gives us freedom to exercise those opinions, as we deem fit before him, we should. But we also need to be willing to defer to other people as we consider them as more important than ourselves. What are, what are, your, what are your hideouts for selfishness? Number three, do I esteem others as more important than myself? Um, If we are looking for it, God does things in our life every day to remind us of our fallenness. God does things every day to remind us that we are not God, that we are not perfect, that we have a lot of growing to do, that we have a lot of issues, whether people know about them or not. And God does that for two reasons. One, because He wants us to grow in humility. And secondly, because He wants us to learn to esteem others as more important than ourselves. Last thing, do I joyfully defer to others? Are, are you known, here's, here's, w- without being a people pleaser, and, and that's another sermon for another day, okay, let's put that over there. Are you known as a person that's easy to get along with? That's a really good question. Are you a person that's easy to get along with because you're willing to defer on things that don't really matter ultimately? And if not, what areas might God be calling you to soften in today? To, to say, you know what? If I'm honest, this thing right here, I really, really, really think too strongly about that. Why do those things need to be addressed? 
Because as we consider one another as more important than ourselves, as we do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, as we look out not for our own personal interests but also for the interests of others, as we do that, that builds unity. And unity gives credibility to the gospel. And then it allows us to be functional as we take the gospel out these walls to minister to hurting people. That's why these things have to change. 